Good morning again. If you turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 20, if you don't have a Bible with you, let me encourage you to grab one of those under the chairs in front of you. You can find Acts 20 on page 902. As I told the first service, uh, I'm not good at faking, and so lest you mumble amongst yourselves, um, I should be home in bed. But uh, this task is not easily delegated, and so my um, low expectations this morning based on last week's passage, is not to kill anybody with the sermon. Um, If uh, you weren't around, read behind this passage in Acts chapter 20, and you'll see what I mean. Um, I also told Betsy Tyvall in the first service that uh, I I thought her description of Kathleen Nielsen would be a wonderful epitaph, especially for a pastor. Intelligent without any hint of hubris. Articulate yet soft-spoken. Um... Years later, you can check, uh, walk by my grave and see if that uh, ended up being um, appropriate for my life, if I live up to that. Oh, before we get started here, um, two weeks ago at the town hall meeting at the 10 a.m. hour, uh, Ken Lunt, our executive director, led a conversation, giving you an update on our pursuit of Pollitt Drive in Fairlawn uh, Township. And he said at the time, the official uh, word was on life support. Um, It is officially dead. We have moved on from that project. And uh, as I shared in the first service, um, the the scripture passage that came to my mind when Ken and I were realizing the last email to be sent on Thursday uh, is a scene from Jesus' ministry with the disciples they're confounded because there are these evil spirits they can't do anything about. And they go to Jesus and they say, what gives? You know, everything else you're telling us to do is, is happening. We can't make this change. And Jesus says, this kind can only come out through prayer. Um, we've expended a lot of effort. Ken leading the charge, uh, some of you volunteering your time. We've done what the wisdom of man can do. We've connected with all kinds of realtors throughout Bergen County. We've pursued dozens of opportunities, but this kind can only come out through prayer. And uh, perhaps this is uh, one thing the Lord would have us learn from this experience is um, for, for each of us, especially if you're a member of Grace Redeemer Church, to ask ourselves, have I really been praying for this project or do I think it's just, you know, look around, find some place and... Um, check off all the boxes. I'm convinced more than ever that this is a near impossible task. All the more reason for us to be praying. God, you need to provide this. You need to open a door where we don't even know the doors exist, let alone know how to open them. Because this kind can only come out through prayer. So um, in the weeks and months ahead, we'll, we'll be bringing you further updates, perhaps about nothing. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, just to reminder of an exhortation to pray. Um, we may have prayer cards if you want a little bit of a, um, a guideline as to what to pray for and what direction. I think there are still cards out on the info table. Please go looking for them. If they're not there, we will make sure that they are updated and restocked for next Sunday. Okay, perhaps we'll even stuff the bulletins again. Acts chapter 20. This morning we continue in our sermon series on the book of Acts, and we've been looking at Paul's third and last missionary journey. He's pretty much done with it at this point. 
And today's passage will mark a, a very different tone in his voice and mark a transition that sets up the, the last section of Acts uh, that leads to the end of Paul's life, actually. In the very beginning of the series, about a year ago, we talked about Acts being a sequel. That's why we call this series Jesus Part 2. Because in the very first verse of the book of Acts, the author Luke refers to his former book. That's his gospel, the gospel of Luke, the account, his account of Jesus' life and ministry and death. And in his gospel, there's a transition point in chapter 9, verse 51, that every scholar, every commentator will point to and say, this is the hinge on which the book turns. Luke chapter 9, verse 51 says this, As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. On the way, he's got a lot more ministry, a lot more teaching, a lot more healing to be done. But everything from Luke chapter 9 through chapter 24 is Jesus heading toward Jerusalem, closer to his death, knowing that in Jerusalem is the epicenter of all the opposition and animosity towards him personally and towards his ministry. And yet that's where he's headed. And here in Acts, Paul too is on his way to Jerusalem. Unlike Jesus, Paul won't die in Jerusalem, but it'll be, it'll be the beginning of the end, and he knows this because the Holy Spirit has told him so. And still, with that knowledge in mind, he resolutely sets his course for Jerusalem. Some of the people who love him most will urge him not to go there, but there's no choice in his mind. That's where God needs him to be. So what we find in today's passage are Paul's last words to the church in which he had invested the biggest chunk of his life, the Ephesians. Listen carefully. These are God's words. Acts 20, verse 17. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you, from the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know... <clears throat> that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now, 
I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, uh, it's an emotional scene that we have the privilege of peeking into. Speak freshly to our hearts this day. Show us the power of these words of Paul as they're directed right at ourselves. We ask that Jesus would be magnified in this time. Amen. First thing we'll talk about is your last lecture. If you went to your doctor one day and some tests led to devastating news, you have less than a year to live. How would that change your behavior? Maybe more to the point, what kind of message would you want to leave for your loved ones? Randy Pausch was a happily married 46-year-old, father of three young kids, six, three, and one, and at the top of his profession as a tenured professor at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh. When pain in his abdomen led him to a doctor visit who suspected hepatitis, who ordered a CT scan, which revealed pancreatic cancer. 96% mortality rate inside of five years. Randy had major surgery, parts of several organs removed, powerful chemo, high doses of radiation, months of recovery at a specialized cancer center, And months after that, in January 2007, his scans showed no sign of cancer. But as his uh, wife sat with him seven months later, August 2007, in an exam room in Houston, the picture on the screen showed 10 tumors filling his liver, metastasis. And medicine no longer had anything to offer him except comfort. He had months to live. Ironically, Carnegie Mellon had already invited him to take part in their last lecture series. They said to uh, professors, what wisdom would you impart to the world if you knew it was your last chance? Typically, these were professors at the end of their career, seasoned in age, uh, asked to look back on their lifetime of family and professional accomplishments and leave something of a pearl of wisdom for these 18-year-old kids sitting in a lecture hall. But Randy Pausch, in contrast, should have been at the prime of his life, physically, professionally, in terms of his family. Randy, in contrast, knew it was his last chance. And as he'd admit to his overflow audience at the very end of his talk, his real motive was to leave something for his kids so that they'd know something about their dad, his heart his values, his outlook on life. He said this in the book, under the ruse of giving an academic lecture, 
I was trying to put myself in a bottle that would one day wash up on the beach for my children. And this book stayed on the bestseller list of the New York Times for over two years. What message would you leave as your last lecture? What words would you want to be resonating in the hearts and minds of your kids for their entire lives? Because this would be the last sense. He, he knew his kids, except for his six-year-old, would have no memory of him. What does a three-year-old remember about her dad? These words would echo so much more powerfully because this would be their only picture of their dad. What would you leave as your message? I don't think it would be, kids, do as many activities and sports and take as many lessons as you can. Stay incredibly busy. Don't turn down ever an opportunity to build your college resume. That's what I want for you. I don't think it'd be that. I don't think it'd be, download as many apps as you can, maximize screen time, because relating to real human beings takes too much energy. I wish I had played more games and watched more movies while I was with you. I don't think we'd say that. I don't think it would be, I want you to remember me as someone who spent a lot of time shopping on the internet, buying more toys, more shoes, more clothes, planning more vacations. And don't ever forget, kids, I worked so hard that we hardly spent any time together, but you had more stuff than your friends. If those kinds of ideas would never qualify in the final draft of your last lecture, then why does so much of everyday life look like those messages? Can we ask ourselves that? Hard question. I hope your message would be more along these lines. Kids, I'm going to be with Jesus pretty soon. And my greatest prayer for you is that you will never doubt his love for you. Don't get bitter at God for taking me home. My greatest prayer is that you'll find his promises all satisfying and that when your heart aches for a dad, you'll trust that your heavenly father provides all that you need. Serve him. Chase after eternal treasure, the stuff we enjoyed together. It was nice, but it will all pass away just like my body is passing away. Put your hope in things that last. Be filled with Jesus' love and let it overflow to everyone around you. If your heart says, yeah, that's more like it. That's, what, that's, that's along the lines of what I wish my last lecture would be about. Well, you have a chance to leave that legacy, hopefully without the forced situation of premature death or any other tragedy that might come about. This is Paul's last lecture, Acts chapter 20. He says this in verse 25. I know that none of you among whom I've gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. They know it. They believe him. Given one last chance, what kind of wisdom does he impart to the church? By the way, this is the only sermon in the book of Acts that is directed at a Christian audience. Every other talk, sermon, teaching is evangelistic um, in, in being directed at those who don't know Jesus yet. And so all the more reason for us to pay attention to this one message delivered to Christians, 
not unlike his epistles written to the churches. What does Paul say in his last lecture? He was in a hurry to get back to Jerusalem by Pentecost, the great Jewish feast. Why, we don't know. But he was docked in the port city of Miletus. Take a look at this map. The arrow's point is right at Miletus uh, on the Aegean Sea. And 30 miles to the north, as the crow flies, the blue star is Ephesus. He didn't have time to go to Ephesus, perhaps because uh, he knew he would want to spend so much time with these beloved people. These, these folks are the ones in whom he had invested the, the biggest chunk of his life in ministry, three years. Uh, it's, a, it's a good guess that these were among his closest friends and colleagues. So he summons the elders of the church to him. Uh, maybe the ship had to get going. We don't know. But they come to him in Miletus, and he shares these words. He starts in verses 18 through 21 by defending himself. It might strike us as kind of odd, and he goes back to that at the very end of the section I read. Again, it actually falls into the pattern of Old Testament leaders who would stand before the people. Uh, Joshua did this. I believe Samuel the prophet did this. And, and they, they share words that, that seem like they're justifying themselves. But it, it was a, a sort of a formula to demonstrate their rightness before the people. I haven't, I haven't taken advantage of this position. I haven't um, seized the advantages of power. I, I, I haven't taken advantage of you. And it, it sort of sets the stage, fittingly so in these last words, for Paul to remind them of some core things. But he starts by defending himself. And, and, and part of the, the, the reality that we, we can relate to is that the burden of leadership involves being misunderstood. It involves having accusations leveled against you from all sides. It involves people knowing that you've made wrong decisions without knowing any of the factors involved. They just know the decision's been wrong, and they're angry at you. Paul's received, he's been the target of this kind of venom from Christians as well as from his opponents. And um, his main answer is this, you know how I've lived among you. You know the consistent message that I've preached. In other words, the evidence of my life's witness should answer your greatest doubts. And then in verse 22, he tells them why this is his last lecture. Compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. And then maybe the key sentence in all of chapter 20, verse 24. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me my only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. You know, Paul and Jesus do the opposite of what we tend to do. We shy away from pain. We run from suffering. We, we avoid death at all costs. But Paul says, I'm going to Jerusalem where I think I'm going to You'd be thrown into prison and, and be killed. Jesus resolutely sets out for Jerusalem, knowing for sure that's where he's going to be killed. Paul says, my life has no worth apart from the greatest fulfillment of all, which is doing the will of God, being a witness, testifying to the gospel of God's grace. That's why I'm here on earth. 
And if I don't continue to do that, what, what, what value does my life have anyway? Run from the opponents? No, no, no. I'm going to run to it, to them, and trust that God's going to use me all the way. Jesus says this, or, or this is said about Jesus in Hebrews chapter 12. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. It's one of those most startling verses in all the New Testament that we need to meditate on. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What was that joy? It involves the joy of seeing sinners that trust in him, like you and I, being washed by the blood of Jesus, being redeemed from slavery to sin and death, being claimed as his own sons and daughters. None of that's possible without the cross, without Jesus being our substitute. You've taken our place. We sung that in in one of the songs. There was a greater good, Paul and Jesus each knew, than mere survival, than uh, mere protection of one's own life. Isn't the greater good kind of idea uh, that, that enters your mind when you think about your last lecture. People talk about leaving a legacy. That kind of language admits that mortality always wins. Death always comes. And so, what can last beyond this life? Here's how Paul continues in verses 28 and following. He says, keep watch, verse 28, be shepherds. Remember, he's talking to the elders of the church. Um, what do elders do? Well, here's a picture of the role of elders from Paul's second letter to Timothy, um, chapter 1, verse 13, uh, 14. He says, What you heard from me, Timothy, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Guard, keep watch. This is the language he um, issues as a command to the elders of the church. Why is this treasure so urgently to be guarded? Because, verse 28, the church of God was bought with the blood of Jesus. What more precious payment could there have been in the life of his own son? That gives the church a measurable value. And and so if God went to such lengths to win for himself the bride, the church, surely he desires every effort to be expended to maintain the health and vitality of his church. And he says this to the elders. Keep watch. Be shepherds. Guard. I'll never forget what a seminary professor told my class one year, um, using the language, stark but biblical language of the prophet Hosea in the Old Testament. He said this to future pastors, urging us to always keep this in mind when uh, life and ministry got tough. Dr. Davis said this, the church may be a whore, but she's the bride of Christ, and she is not yours to abandon. I'm not sure if I ever wrote that down, but I'll never forget it. The 
church is a whore. That's the language of Hosea. We don't like that stark kind of language, but in our sin, in our idolatry, in our lack of faith, we are unfaithful to our spouse. The church may be a whore, but she's the bride of Christ, and she is not yours to abandon, whether you're a pastor or a lay leader or um, anything in between. Paul's talking to this one bunch of leaders, but he uses three terms. He calls them elders in uh, the beginning, verse 17, presbyteroi, from which we get the word Presbyterian. He calls them um, overseers in verse 28, episcopoi, from which we get the, the sense of episcopal church government with bishops in a hierarchy. And he calls them shepherds in verse 28 as well, poimen. All terms, each, each of these three terms talking about the same people. Um, they, have, they have the same role. Uh, regardless of what we, t- we call them. Um, th- this, by the way, is where we get the Presbyterian form of government, the, the idea that a shepherding team is the model of Scripture. Elders who share spiritual leadership, who guard doctrine as the leaders of the church, not elders who make decisions, business decisions, um, you know, make transactions, make policy decisions. That, that, that stuff might come on the periphery. But elders who... Um, um, shepherd the flock, who teach the Word of God, who guard the good deposit that was entrusted to us. Um, When Paul says, keep watch over yourselves and over all the flock, it implies a danger. It implies um, enemies that would threaten the health of this spiritual organism. Attacks will come, he says, from those who, verse 30, distort the truth. Nothing has changed since the serpent went at Adam and Eve in the garden. Genesis chapter 3. Did God really say that you should not eat the fruit of that tree? Maybe the version today sounds like, do you really think God's word is so firm, unyielding, harsh? Truth. Truth is never truth. Always, is it? Isn't God a a God of love, of mercy, of compassion, of understanding, of second chances? That may be true, but sometimes we allow that lie to distort what we know to be God's authority and His truth. So shepherds have this double duty to feed the sheep and to protect against the wolves. Feeding the sheep is the positive teaching of God's Word. Protecting against the wolves is the negative warning against falsehood and deception and distortions of truth. That double duty always requires courage and conviction because it doesn't prove to be a popular message. Um, If you only hear from this pulpit or any other pulpit things that you find pleasing to your ears, something is wrong. That means... Um, I am catering to itching ears, as Paul writes in his letter to Timothy as well. That means the hard-hitting, riot-causing gospel of Jesus Christ, Acts chapter 19, isn't really at work here. We're holding back. Um, The people of God should not always like to hear the truth of God because it should disrupt. It should hurt. It should make you uncomfortable. It should... Um, nag at you as the Spirit brings conviction of sin and warning against distortions and falsehoods. Sometimes that stuff tastes good. It's very appealing. 
Uh, there, there, there's things about messages out there that you'd prefer to the Word of God. And warning against that is not a popular message either. All the more reason to pray for your elders as we feed the sheep, as we protect against wolves. Tom Wright says this. He's a commentator. He's a, a British pastor. He says, The greatest heresies do not come about by straightforward denial. Most of the church will see that for what it is. They happen when an element which may even be important but isn't central looms so large that people can't help talking about it, fixating on it, debating different views of it as though this were the only thing that mattered. And he points historically to the arguments in the church over purgatory during the Middle Ages, centuries ago. And he points to arguments within the church in the 20th century over the rapture and the second coming of Christ and end times theology as an example. And the question then is, what's the 21st century version of this? Secondary things that become all important and distract us from the truth of God's Word. I'm not convinced that we need to worry about that and look for it and identify it because... Um, it doesn't matter as long as we do not lose sight of the cross of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter as long as we never think that we can move beyond the centrality of the gospel to something more advanced because there is nothing more advanced. The gospel is all that we need. So we can disagree about baptism. We can vote along different party lines. We can debate social policies as long as the clear and sufficient truth of God's word is central and within his word, the most important reality that we always hold high is the life, death, and resurrection of the Son, the Savior, Jesus. Lastly, our response. Randy Pausch, his diagnosis forced upon him and his family a great clarity. And he writes that maximizing life was his mission. Um, as biblical Christians, we have an advantage. We know that life does not end when the body's functions cease. We know that life in the new heavens and the earth is, uh, is promised to be far more glorious than any hint of glory we've ever gotten here on earth. And so, for the biblical Christian, maximizing life gets put into this language, living in light of resurrection reality. You can do that now without a death sentence. There are a bunch of responses we could walk through. Um, I'm just going to share one story to illustrate what this means, living in light of resurrection reality. Monty Williams is a name that many of you became familiar with over the last few weeks. He's the associate coach of the Oklahoma City Thunder professional basketball team. And a little over two weeks ago, his, life was, his wife was tragically killed in a car accident. 44 years old. Three of their five children were in the car, but survived with serious injuries. And he delivered a eulogy at her funeral, recorded and shared with millions, watched by millions via social media. And I know many of you watched that clip. In the face of losing their mom, his five children heard what I believe is the most important thing a man could have ever done in that situation. Eternity impacting message to share with people and his five children listening. 
in light of what had just happened, he affirmed steadfast faith in the things of eternity. He affirmed faith in resurrection power. He affirmed faith in God's worthiness to be trusted in the face of this most tragic of circumstances. And he also demonstrated a heart of forgiveness towards the person who had been driving 92 miles an hour in a 40-mile-an-hour zone and crossed over and hit his wife's car head-on and could have killed their three children as well, three of their five. He demonstrated that heart of forgiveness and saying, I, um, there, there's another family hurting out there. And it does us no good to uh, aim venom at this other driver. He quoted Romans 8.28, trusting that in all things, don't you think that has greater significance and power punch behind it? In all things, including the loss of wife and mother, God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. And he said this, we didn't lose her. When you lose something, you don't know where it is. But I know where my wife is in the presence of Jesus. I watched that clip. I wept. And one of the things I thought to myself was, I'm not sure I would have had the strength to do that. I'm a professional speaker in a sense. Uh, Monty's a basketball coach. And I wonder, no disrespect to Monty. Tremendous man. I have tremendous respect for him. I'm not sure Monty knew that he'd have the strength to do that either. Um, Where did it come from? It came from a man who had already been living in light of resurrection realities. This didn't come upon him suddenly. Was it an ungodly man? Suddenly, in the, in the hour of need, he's able to be a witness, a testifier to the gospel of God's grace. I, I, I trust, I believe, I can't imagine any other situation other than Monty Williams and his wife was, were leading their five children and walking according to resurrection realities. And in the greatest time of need, the Holy Spirit gave him strength that he otherwise would have lacked. Who could be that strong? In the face of that kind of tragedy, I don't think any of us could be apart from the grace of God. The only way you could consider your life and the lives of your loved ones of no value apart from doing and obeying the will of God is if you tenaciously trust that your life has already been secured for eternity at the cost of the blood of the Son, Jesus. Let's pray in his name and for his glory, trusting in his promises. Lord, your grace is enough. Your promise of resurrection is real. You've shown us by leading the way. You're the first fruits from the dead. And as this Easter season unfolds, Lord, show us our sin. Show us the trifling ways we waste hours of every day. And give us strength by your Spirit to live in light of resurrection reality now, without a death sentence, without a terminal diagnosis, without um, the end of our lives hanging over us. Give us strength now to live in light of eternity. Help us to redeem every minute you give us because our lives are nothing 
apart from the most significant mission of doing your will and obeying your word. We pray in the matchless name of Jesus who gave his blood for his church. Amen.